Our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart was guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the great delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you are uh, looking at the sermon title in the bulletin and uh, misread it and you think that the sermon is the pleasures of vaping, um, not, not so much the pleasures of vaping, though if that is your thing, I, as I was coming into the church this morning, I saw a, a vape store uh, on, on the way in, just like a block away. Vaping's not my thing. However, uh, Brett and JD have promised to bring me back a Cuban cigar from an upcoming trip. And so you've heard it here, and I just need this congregation to hold them accountable uh, to that, <laughs> that promise. Um, Ecclesiastes, right? It's a difficult book in ways. Um, it, it is a difficult book because it is, it is so unrelentingly real. There, there's no spin going on in Ecclesiastes. It came to mean much to me, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, during a particularly heartbreaking season of life. Uh, we had discovered in September of 2014 that my mother uh, had cancer. And you don't know a bigger mama's boy than me. You just, you just don't. And um, all we could do, more or less, was just watch the disease take its toll in the, in the short few months that followed. And the, the book of the Bible that seemed to sort of rise uh, over them all in, in terms of having any effect in calming my fearful, troubled soul was Ecclesiastes. And I just read it uh, over and over. And to the point one night, my wife came in. I was just, you know, on the couch in, in a place of darkness reading Ecclesiastes. And she said, David, would you please lay down Ecclesiastes and Job and mix in some Philippians? which is the letter of joy. Um, I, uh, the last couple of weeks have been, uh, I, I teach theology for Reformed Theological Seminary and I was uh, teaching apologetics classes in RTS Atlanta and RTS Charlotte the last couple of weeks. And one of the things I tell my seminary students is that uh, ministry will beat the pride out of you 
or pride will beat you out of the ministry. One of the two. Ministry will beat the pride out of you or pride is going to beat you out of the ministry. And so you need traveling partners. You can't go it alone. You need traveling partners from that great cloud of witnesses. Obviously, you need brothers and sisters to walk with you along the way. But traveling partners from that great cloud of witnesses about uh, whom we read in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 uh, to, to teach you, to, to walk alongside of you. And so uh, I, have, I have a whole entourage, a whole posse that goes with me. Uh, Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin and Augustine. And, but, but this morning, I, I hope you'll indulge me if I let uh, one of my traveling partners, C.S. Lewis, help me uh, with, with this sermon. I'll never forget just about three months before my mother passed away and I knew uh, that there, there was going to be no, no cure. And I picked up a well-worn copy of Lewis's A Grief Observed, uh, where the opening lines hit me more profoundly than any passage of sophisticated theology or, or philosophy ever could. So here, here you had this Oxford Don, this king of, of eloquent, tightly woven prose, stumbling through a stream of consciousness, halting, disjointed, and, and as he's doing it, he's reading me like a book. The opening lines of a grief observed, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, um, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning, I keep on swallowing. He goes on to try to talk some sense into his head, kind of brush us off and sort of speak what he calls some common sense. Things aren't at all that bad. Uh, I, I need to let go of this grief. And, and then he says, then comes a sudden jab of red hot memory and all this common sense vanishes like an ant in the mouth of a furnace. This little book, uh, 1961, was drawn from four notebooks wherein C.S. Lewis just vented the, the anguish of his charred soul following the death of his wife, Joy Davidman, in 1960. And he, he wrestles in this little uh, journal uh, of his soul's journey through the valley of the shadow of death with learning to reaccept at an existentially uh, deeper level his brilliant observations 20 years earlier in a book entitled The Problem of Pain. Where, where he says, uh, look, I am not approaching the problem of pain aloof. I am not pretending that it is not a terrible adversary. So he says, no one should, should charge me with uh, jesting at scars who never felt a wound. He said, however, I am approaching this from an intellectual standpoint. I'm wanting to look at the intellectual aspects of the, of the problem of, of pain and suffering. Um, Aslan would not allow Lewis this luxury forever. Uh, for the one who wrote so compellingly of the, of the thawing of Narnia into the springtime of life would have his heart frozen uh, in the fear-filled grief that only death can render. The problem of pain, uh, if some of you have read it, you realize it's probably more accurately entitled the problem of pleasure. Um, because the reason pain comes around is because we struggle with the question of, of pleasure. Why is it so fleeting? Why do we want it so badly? And, and, and why do we end up like the Rolling Stones just singing over and over, I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try. I just can't get no satisfaction. Um, pleasure's fleeting. It is. Lakana, Solomon says, come now. Uh, that, that's an important phrase. Come now. 
right? He's talking to his heart. He has, in chapter one, given a very careful study of the meaning of life. He's done worldview analysis, what we would call in apologetics classes. He's done worldview analysis. He's looked at the main pieces of the worldview puzzle. He's asked the questions of, of theology and anthropology and epistemology. How do we know what we know? Metaphysics, is there anything beyond the physical? He's asked the question of, of ethics. What is right? What is wrong? Who, who judges uh, morality? He's asked all of these crucial worldview questions, and he's decided there, there are no answers. Uh, there are just no answers. Um, there's no great meta narrative, and it just all comes to an end. All is chavel. It's just vapor. It just like a mist. It just blows away. And so he turns then to pleasure. Simcha in the Hebrew. He turns to pleasure. The, the word literally means light-hearted mirth. And, and so we have to ask the question here: Can can a life of just sort of escapism and pursuing light-hearted pleasure rescue us from the fallout of the fall? Can, uh, can pleasure make the pain go away? If we just lighten up, pursue whatever makes us happy, um, meaningless won't matter. Yet pleasure's so fleeting. It is. Years ago, my, my little boy played baseball. He's probably five or six, little, little baseball league over in Bellevue. And um, a group of the parents, you know, we, we kind of, you know, developed a lot of community there. And there was this one, this one sort of hurried and harried single mom whose, whose son played on the team with, with my son. And she just had so much honor, and the parents on the team would try to come around her and encourage her and so forth. One time, one of her younger sons got into her purse and uh, absconded a piece of Dove chocolate, just a little bitty piece of Dove chocolate. He unwrapped it and began to eat it. She was standing, you know, probably 10 feet away, and she saw him about to eat that Dove chocolate, and she was like, no, I was saving that for my bubble bath tonight. The pleasure, right? We, we just look for it in so many ways, and it just can, you know... <laughs> Like vapor or like a piece of chocolate eaten by a three-year-old. Uh, and there goes your bubble bath. We need to put our problem into perspective. Uh, Solomon's doing heart talk here. And, and the first thing I want to say about the human heart, here's what is true of you. Created in the image of God, you are designed to desire. You are welcome to want. There is no escaping it. We are designed to desire. We are welcome to want. Um, he says, search my heart on how to cheer my body. And that's the crucial I searched my heart on how to cheer my body. No, no sort of Gnosticism going on here, right? No, no uh, body-soul dualism uh, at, at play. We are created in the image of God, imago dei, body and soul. We know and experience pleasure and plain, uh, God and our idols uh, in both body and soul. And so he says, I'm, I'm going to talk to my heart. Our problem is that we slip into sort of the, the Gnosticism, the paganism that existed in the Garden of Eden like our first parents, and we decide we're going to be our own gods. Um, we're going to make the rules about right and wrong, about how we are going to use uh, and abuse the good things of creation to suit our own desires. Isn't it interesting, after all these millennia, um, not much has changed. I mean, Solomon did say in Ecclesiastes 1.9, did he not, there is nothing new under the sun. Solomon, like me, and like you, struggled with the same things. Substance, addiction, success, stuff, sex. Uh, substance uh, abuse. He says, look, I, I, I turned myself over to wine. Psalm 104.15 says, wine makes the heart glad. Wine is, is a good gift of God. I have a series of videos that we did at Christ Prez uh, over at Black Abbey Brewery and they're, they're on Vimeo, which is a biblical view of God's good gift of, of wine and beer if you want to go check those out. However, while wine makes the heart glad, it doesn't cure what makes the heart sad. 
It doesn't get to the root of the, of the trouble. And sometimes we want to avoid the root, what's making our heart sad, and just kind of numb out and, and just get a little bit buzzed and, and a little bit glad. And, and that, that does it for us. In our brokenness, in our sadness, in our, in our fear, in our pain, we become addicted to it. Uh, demanding of, of substances like good gifts of God, like wine. Rescue me. Rescue me. Uh, give me meaning. Take the pain away. Uh, you, you can imagine the wine cellar Solomon must have had. I mean, had he been alive today, his bourbon collection would have been the envy of Tennessee and Kentucky combined, right? You can imagine that to which he had access. But, but Solomon is not so much drowning his sorrows as he is lubricating his search for meaning. Um, he turns to wine to be his cup of wisdom. It, it's been said though, and we're going to see this in the text, uh, what, what happens when he turns that way uh, to be his wisdom. It, it's been said that um, wine is the first person in the trinity of sensuous abandonment, wine, women, and song. Reminds me of a song Steve Perry, who I think is the, the greatest rock vocalist who's ever lived. And if you don't agree, uh, you ought to pray about it. But Steve Perry once sang a song, whiskey, wine, and women, they get me through the night. Right? We, we've, we've been there. We, we know. And he says, look, I'm turning to wine to kind of lubricate my search for wisdom. And then pretty soon, he says, whatever my eyes desired, verse 10 uh, no pleasure was kept from my heart. Um, he, he turns to every sensual pleasure imaginable. Um, he has as many women as he wants. He turns to sex. Has it ever dawned on you that, um, and I don't know what you thought of the last Star Wars movie, and I'm not going to give any spoilers, although if I did, by now you should have seen it, but... Here's the thing, I don't know what you thought of the last Star Wars movie, but, but for a lot of us who are like, you know, one of the things kind of self-righteously, they don't compare to the movies from the 70s and 80s when I was a kid. And, and I think we probably would all agree that Empire Strikes Back is probably the, the greatest of all the Star Wars movies. But do you remember in Return of the Jedi? Remember Jabba the Hutt? I mean, in some ways, Jabba the Hutt is kind of a picture of what Solomon is describing here. Remember Jabba on his, on his sail barge? He had, he had slaves, he had singers, he had wine, he had sex, he had, he had everything all around him in just complete opulence. He had all the stuff, he had everything. And, and ultimately, it was his undoing. It, it cost him his life. Right? These, these things that, that we think can satisfy us as ends in and of themselves, they, they just suck the life away from us. It's, it's like dying of thirst and we're just licking a salt block of stuff or, or sex or, or whatever. Uh, and, and we're demanding that it slake our thirst. You know, I, I can honestly say in, um, goodness, I've been in vocational ministry since the mid 80s and um, no other area has more consumed pastoral counseling in my experience, than sexual brokenness and sin, hearts hollowed out, marriages maimed, bodies broken. Uh, we, we struggle here, I struggle here, uh, in the area of sexual brokenness because we were designed for intimacy. We're, we're, created, we're created for intimacy. The pleasure of body and soul, belonging, enjoying one man and one woman in covenant for life. But, but I wonder, again, right, you know, you know the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I wonder, and whatever my eyes desire, my heart will have that pleasure. And that's, that's what Solomon's saying here. Uh, look in the New Testament. Turn, turn to the New Testament. A little further back in, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Here's the bad news of the gospel for sinners like me, all right? Here's the bad news of the gospel for sinners like me. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's bad news for sinners like me because that passage has painted me into a corner from every direction. This passage has painted me to the man. It's been reading my mail. But, but here's the good news of the gospel for sinners like me. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. That means you were declared righteous and clean, holy in the sight of God. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So here's the good news of the gospel. We come into a place like this, like those dogs from the movie Up with our cones of shame and we can't wrench them off of our necks and Jesus has come, let me wash you, let me bathe you. I will take away that cone of shame and I will drape a robe of my righteousness over, over your shoulders. That's the good news for sinners like me. And, and here's the call to sinners like me. Look down at verse 18. Paul says, David Filson, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Right? You see, our sexuality it is so central to who we are as imagers of God. It's a precious thing. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So, so here's the call. The next time you're tempted, remind yourself you're a temple. The next time you're tempted, remind yourself, I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to hear Job tell us. Job, the very the earliest book of the Bible, do you, do you realize that the very oldest, it's not the first in your table of contents, but the oldest writing in the Bible is the book of Job. Although even back before Abraham himself. And in Job 31.1, Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl, right? This, again, nothing new under the sun. So Solomon says, look, I, I'm, I'm trying everything, um, stuff, right? He goes through this litany of things that he has bought, things that he has built, things that he's just sort of amassed around him. Look, we all like stuff. We have lots of it. Every one of us in this room, all of us, we, we, we have lots of stuff. We, we pile it up oftentimes in an effort to make ourselves forget we are mortal. You know, the, the more things I can amass, the more I'm worth. The, the, the more stuff there is around me, the more substance there is to me. Um, the question, of course, is not whether it is okay to have stuff. Our stuff, our things, is a gift of the, of the Lord. Um, again, we are all ludicrously wealthy in this room compared to much of the world. We are all filthy rich in this room. We, we, we just have so much, all of us. The, the question is uh, not is it okay to have stuff. That, that's God's good blessing to us. The question is do we hold it loosely? knowing that we are held tightly by our Father in heaven. The question is not, do we have stuff, but does our stuff have us? I, um, I think some of the greatest prose in all of English literature, in my opinion, is in Tolkien's Hobbit. Now, I know that for those of you who are Tolkien aficionados here, you already are looking down your snooty noses at me and saying, why would you dare say The Hobbit when you could have said, you know, The Lord of the Rings? But, but bear with me. I think some of the, some of the most 
incredible prose I've ever read is in, is in The Hobbit toward the end, right? You have Smog. He's a fire drake from the third age. He is the, he is the great and last dragon of Middle Earth, and he was confident in his success. He was confident in the things that he had amassed. He was confident in the works of his hands. It was, it was sort of Solomon-like in a certain sense. He was so confident in the pleasures around him uh, that, that he had acquired and all that he'd accomplished. And he says this, my armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are swords. My claws, spears. The shock of my tail is a thunderbolt. My wings are hurricane and my breath, death. It's a great line. You got to love that, right? He hoarded, right, he had hoarded all the gold and jewels of the drawers of Lonely Mountain. He just kind of, he just kind of set on it, you know, so that no one could take his stuff. And one day, though, uh, he, he leaves his lair to destroy the drawers because he, he had um, found out that they were going to come retake their wealth. And so he, he flies out to destroy them. And, and here's what I love. Then Bard, the bowman, uh, drew his bowstring to his ear. The dragon was circling back, flying low. And as he came, the moon, and this, this is where it gets good. The moon rose above the eastern shore and silvered his great wings. You got to admit, that's good stuff, right? Arrow, said the bowman, black arrow, I have saved you to the last. You have never failed me and always I have recovered you. I had you from my father and he from of old. If ever you came from the forges of the true king under the mountain, go now and speed well. The dragon swooped once more lower than ever. And as he turned and dived down, his belly glittered white with sparkling fires of gems in the moon, but not in one place. The great bow twanged. The black arrow sped straight from the string, straight for the hollow of the left breast where the foreleg was flung wide in it smote and vanished barb shaft and feather so fierce was its flight with a shriek that deafened men felled trees and split stone smog shot spouting into the air turned over and crashed down from on high in ruin what of all his riches then what of all of his gold and his jewels then some of the greatest prose in my opinion, some of the saddest in all literature is when the rich young man asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. He came to Jesus confident that he had perfectly obeyed the law to begin with. So what more do I need to add to my perfect obedience to the law? And Jesus said, okay, um, take what you have, um, give it to the poor and come and follow me. Um, Jesus told him, prize the poor more than your possessions, hope in heaven more than your hoarding. And here's the saddest, here's some of the saddest words. The young man went away sad because he had very many possessions. Solomon's wealth was, was great and, and opulent, but, but he, um, he says it started to feel like vapor to me. So he says in verse 11, um, he talks about his success. L listen to this. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. Right? He's thinking about all that he accomplished. No one's going to deny the, the success of Solomon. Um, I, I read a report that, uh, that said that one in four Americans believe that God is involved in football games, especially big ones like the Super Bowl, which I found interesting that God was kind of like, okay, in my sovereignty and in my complete providence and omnipresence uh, throughout the universe, I'm not going to worry about preseason, but man, by the time it gets to the playoffs and the Super Bowl, I'm in, I'm paying attention, but whatever. So one in four Americans think that God, right, especially when it comes to big games. And so last night, 
I, I watched the 2009 interview by Ira Rosner of Tom Brady. Now, I don't think anybody's going to deny the greatness of Tom Brady as, as a quarterback. Um, by that point, he had run three Super Bowl rings. Uh, tonight, he may have increased his collection to six, although I have a lot of uh, connections and friends in Philadelphia who are hoping that's not the case, right? Um, he acknowledged that he had reached the top. You can't get more successful than where I am, but, but he says there has to be more. Um, and so Ira asked him, well, what is that more? And Brady replied, man, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Now, after this interview, um, Brady reported that uh, people started sending him Bibles in the mail. And a few years later, a New York Times uh, reporter goes by, Mark uh, Leibovich, and uh, interviews Brady, and he surveys Brady's apartment. And he said there were Bibles laying all around because people had been sending him Bibles after he had said, you know, I wish there was more, I don't know what it is. But then he said he also saw a, a, a menorah. And um, so, he, so he says, you know, back in 2009, he, he and his um, supermodel wife, they, they married in a small Catholic church in Santa Monica, uh, but, but he's looking at these menorahs, he's looking at Bibles, he's looking at these various symbols of religion in his apartment. And Brady says, look, we're not Jewish, um, but, but, I, but I think we're into everything. I don't know what I believe. I think there's a belief system. I'm just not sure what it is. And he's right. There, there is a belief system that makes sense of why we desire intimacy, why we want to know and be known uh, why we find things pleasurable and why, why we want to desire and, and want, to be, want to be satisfied. There is a belief system that makes sense of that. And, and, and so the thing is that we, we just go around licking so many salt blocks saying, tell me, you know, in, inform me, make, make sense of these things, please me, satisfy me. And it just makes us thirstier and thirstier. We struggle here because, right, when it comes to success, Solomon's not knocking success. We're created for work, deep, meaningful, hard, creative work. Work was not a curse of the fall, even though like everything else uh, that was good, uh, work was cursed by the fall. So, so we are called in Christ to take uh, work, a central aspect of who we are as imagers of God, and, um, and refuse to remake it in our own image, right? And say, Lord, we, we're going to do the things that we do, knowing that, that our work is not that which ultimately defines us. It is Jude 1, I am called, I am loved, and I am kept. I mean, imagine knowing what the Bible says about you. You are called, you are loved, you are kept for Christ Jesus, and letting that first level identity statement fuel the way you approach your calling, your vocation, your work. And, and, and you see it as, as an expression of Christ's redemption of the world in and through you as you set your hand to whatever it's going to be tomorrow. Right, see, eternity is in our hearts. Our hearts want more. They must have more. The reason that, that things and pleasure disappoint is that there is no innate eternity in them. They point to eternity and the eternal one. When we make pleasures, whatever they are, stuff, sex, success, whatever, um, when we make pleasures the telos of our existence, the end, the goal, then those pleasures fail us. They become most unpleasurable. Uh, we need the source of pleasure God himself to topple the idols of, of, our, of our hearts, the, the, the source of pleasure to show us what is truly pleasurable in all of the good things that, that he has given us, that they are pointers to him, that they are pointers that we were made for more. Uh, again, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. I love what he says in the problem of pain. Listen to this. The settled happiness and security which we all desire 
that God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment, he has scattered broadcast. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It's not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and oppose an obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bath, or a football match, they have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns or hotels, but he will not encourage us to mistake them for home. So we need to put the joy back in in joy, right? When substance and stuff and sex and success, so I'm gonna define you. I need what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. Uh, to, to lay hold of my heart. Again, Psalm 1611 tells us, at your right hand, Lord, are pleasures evermore. Who is at the Lord's right hand? Jesus himself. What does that tell us about Jesus? He is pleasure evermore. Jonathan Edwards speaks of Jesus as the cream of all our pleasures. Can you imagine seeing Jesus that way? He is the cream of all your pleasures. At the Father's right hand are pleasures evermore. At the Father's right hand is our mediator, the Lord Jesus. In Psalm 27:4, David says, I simply want to be in the sanctuary and I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He said, man, that sounds good. That, that sounds like it could be cool water on sore feet. How do I gaze at the beauty of the Lord? It's not like Jesus is going to float down when I ask him to, like a genie out of a bottle. How, how do I gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Well, in the church, we have what we call the means of grace, avenues of grace, where the Lord shows us his beauty. Um, the Holy Spirit works through these things. The word preached is a means of grace, right? Where we hear the gospel of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have turned away. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He had no beauty or comeliness that we should desire him. The Lord laid aside his beauty to enter David Filson's ugliness and brokenness and sin and rebellion. He laid aside his beauty, right? The, the, the eternal pleasures of, of heaven to enter my sadness. He came to, to charm your affections away from what Hebrews 11.25 calls the fleeting pleasures of sin. I love the fact that the Bible does not say that sin is not pleasurable. It acknowledges sin is pleasurable, but it's a fleeting pleasure, Right? Just, just a vapor, just goes away. I've spent so much time um, enjoying myself and my sin. So Jesus came. He came. Look at Hebrews 12. I want you to look at Hebrews 12. You're talking about joy and pleasure. You ask yourself, what, what would give Jesus joy? What would give Jesus pleasure? Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What possibly could have been joyful held out in front of Jesus in the prospect of the barbarism and the inhumanity and the savagery of the cross? What possible joy could there have been ahead of him as he looked at the cross? You ever been over in the dining hall over here? It looks like a scene from 
the Harry Potter movies, right? I wish I could just perform some kind of Harry Potter spell on that page and turn it into a mirror. That page that you are looking at right now, turn it into a mirror and you would have the answer. What is the joy that was set before him as he went to the cross? You were that joy set before him. You are the joy held out to Jesus. You are that which makes him feel pleasure. You are that which satisfies him. The work that he's doing in your life, what he was giving up to do for you what you never could have done for yourself. You are that joy. Y'all are that joy. That's in the MSV, the Mid-South version. Y'all are that joy. We, we need the word, right, to remind us of the gospel. I'm going to have the privilege tomorrow, I'm going to have the privilege tomorrow of being at the graveside of Susan Kelton. Some of you know Susan Kelton. Uh, I had the privilege just a couple of weeks ago, before I left the teach, to go uh, sit with her at her deathbed. She's frail, so weak. You know what she wanted to talk about? The two things that really were sustaining her the relationships in her life, the people in the room, and are you ready for this? Good theology. She wanted to talk about gospel truth. That's what was sustaining her. She had, she had come to the deep wells of the word and, and it was sustaining her. And now her faith has become sight. She called me in to come talk to her about theology. She said, David, I need someone who knows theology. I need for you to come talk to me about good theology. Do you realize that the moment she saw Jesus face to face, she was an eminently, infinitely better theologian than I am right now because she sees Jesus and she knows him as he is. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, all your life an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you've lost it forever. Susan attained it. Cry out to Jesus, come now, yes, come now. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The word is a way of seeing the beauty of Jesus. Prayer, right, the last few times I've been here, I've talked about prayer, so I won't belabor the point. Suffice it to say, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, therefore, since we have a great high priest, that's what makes it good news. It would be news if the author of Hebrews says there is a great high priest, but it's good news because the author of Hebrews says we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens. Let us hold on swerving to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is at all point tempted, even as are we. Therefore, he was without sin. Let us approach boldly the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Isn't it good to know? That you have a savior who when you stumble and you sin and you become an idolater, he does not scold you. He sympathizes with you. And he says, come, talk to me about it. Come now. And the sacraments, we see the beauty of Jesus. The waters of baptism where the Lord marks us with an outward sign of his outward faithfulness to us and to our children. The Lord's Supper feeding us and, and nourishing us and, and building us up. You know, we seek intimacy and pleasure in so many different ways. But, but there are a few things, and listen to me, there are a few things more intimate than putting something in your mouth and biting down on it and swallowing it and letting it become a part of you. Do you realize how the Lord affirms your physicality and your need to receive the gospel physically? Do you see how the Lord affirms your need for intimacy that he would say, take me into you. Let me become 
a part of you. Yet I just, I just lick the salt block of my sin and my rebellion. I love, I don't know what your favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia, mine's silver chair. Um, I love what Lewis says about Jill, right? She had caused scrub to go over the cliff and he died. And so she wakes up, she's crying. And Lewis says she's dying of thirst, right? You, you probably know the story, some of you. But she hears off in the distance the sound of a rippling brook and it starts to drive her mad. She goes toward the sound of that brook knowing that it is water and she is so thirsty, so parched, so dry. And when she sees the brook over the horizon, there's just one problem. You know what that problem was? A big lion named Aslan standing there, as Lewis says, in all his motionless bulk. And so she begins to negotiate with Aslan. Would you move away? I want to come drink. Well, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Well, I need you to go away. And she begins to negotiate. And he's not going to go away. And she says, well, well let me ask you this. Uh, do you eat little girls? And he says, I have consumed men and women, boys and girls, empires and nations. She says, well, will you promise if I come and drink not to consume me? And Aslan says, I make no such promise. All the while, she's taking one step closer and one step closer. And the next thing you know, Lewis says she plunges herself into that water. And it's the coolest, most refreshing water that she's ever tasted. And then she looks up and she's between his two forepaws with her lips still wet from the drinking. I would ask you, how long has it been since you have found your lips still wet from the drinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is pleasure evermore? Here's good news. Here's a stream. Here is grace, bread and wine, the sweetest affair. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, Isaiah says. And you who have no money, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which cannot satisfy you? Listen carefully to me and delight yourself in the richest affair. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come now. Set our hearts to hungering. Give us a thirst that only, that only you can quench. Meet us here, for we ask it in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. I encourage you to stand, and as the kids are brought back in, turn your hearts and your eyes toward the words on the screen.